curveball that you weren't sure what to do with? You know, the kind where you think someone should really do something about this. Have you ever thought maybe that someone is me and then found yourself on a grand adventure you never saw coming? Me too. As a special needs mom, I have been saddened by what's available to my son. But instead of wallowing in it, I decided to do something about it. Along the way, I'm meeting extraordinary people and having the most wonderful experiences I never thought I'd have. I'm so inspired by what's happening around me that I want to share it all with you. Living Your Legacy is a community where ordinary people who've been called to create something bigger than themselves can come together to be inspired, connect, learn, and live into the legacies they want to see in the world. I'm your host, Michelle Slaney Travato, and this is the Living Your Legacy podcast. Hello, everybody. Michelle Slaney Travato here, and I'm so excited to welcome you to another episode of the Living Your Legacy show. Now, one of the things that's near and dear to my heart, and one of the things that keeps me going when things get tough, is the stories of inspiration. The stories of people who really have had mountains put in front of them, but instead of just giving up in despair, well, you might give up momentarily, but instead of permanently giving up in despair or permanently saying, oh, that's it. It's too hard. I can't do it. These are people who stopped and looked at that mountain and thought, okay, so either I can go up and over it. I can go around it. Maybe I dig a tunnel right through it, but either way, I am getting to the other side of this thing. And then when they're on the other side, they can share with you all that grit and determination and just sheer stick with itness that allowed them to get there. And that on worst days for me is the stuff I hang on to, because I think if that woman did it, if that family did it, then, you know, I should be able to do this too. And I dig deep and keep going. And today I've got somebody on the show who is exactly that. Um, I would like to take a minute to introduce you to one of my inspirations, my friend Stacy Bernal. Stacy, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Michelle. So excited to spend this time with you as well. So folks, let me tell you a little bit about Stacy. Um, and I'll then I'll talk a little bit about how we actually got to know each other. Stacy is a mom. She's an autism advocate. She is an author a TEDx speaker right there. That's a mountain for sure. A recently elected school board member, and she's the new diversity, equity, and inclusion manager for the Utah Jazz. Stacy has come so far in her life, and we met actually on Facebook in a special needs parent group where she posted something about what she was doing, and her post was so hopeful. It was so filled with, you know, sometimes life, well, frankly, sucks, but here's what we can either do with it, about it, or because of it. And I thought to myself, I need more of that woman in my life. So I reached out and connected with her. And over the few years we've gotten to know each other, I have been and continue to be so inspired by your story, Stacey. Um, so let's jump in a little bit about, um, We'll start with your book, I think, because uh, that was one of the first things. And you, she was so kind. She sent it to me. And I told her at that time, one day I'm going to interview you. And today we're making it happen. So 
Stacey, this is your book. I love it. Uh, the Things That We Don't Talk About. I totally have it here in my hand. A Memoir of Hardships, Healing, and Hope. And I was telling Stacy off the call that literally, uh, since we moved, I have a small little uh, bookcase. And on my bookcase, I had to really choose because I'm a former English teacher. So I have a ton of books. I had to really choose which ones I was going to put on this particular bookcase. And I chose books that inspire me. The authors inspire me. What was in the book inspired me. And when I went looking for Stacy's book for this podcast episode and the TV show, it was right there. It's I look at it every day and I think to myself, everything this woman has overcome, what I'm dealing with pales in comparison and she's still out there doing it. So the least I can do is keep on keeping on. So Stacy, talk to us a little bit about your book, about some of the stories that are in the book, about your story. Like, how did all that come about? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think in the intro, you kind of hit it on the head when you said, when we get to these mountains, when we get to these obstacles, we have to decide whether we climb over it, whether we get around it, whether we dig a tunnel under it. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure I have done every single one of those things to conquer all of my mountains. And certainly in my book, I address a lot of those, um, those mountains, but I, the idea for the book really came from uh, one of my first speaking events way, way, way back in 2016. I was um, just speaking for a small group of work colleagues, and I decided that the presentation I was going to do, I wanted it to be a motivational presentation. And I thought, I'll just share a little bit of my story and my journey. So that was the first time I actually had publicly shared um, my adoption story. So I am a birth mom. I got pregnant when I was a junior in high school and um, placed that baby boy for adoption. and. Then I went about my life never, ever talking about it because there was this shame associated with that. And uh, it wasn't until many years later that I was able to look back at that and think, you know, I'm really proud of that decision that I made at that age. It was this really hard, painful thing that I did. And I don't I don't want to carry that as something that I'm ashamed of. I want to be able to share that and be proud of that. So I shared it for the first time in 2016. And I had a colleague who came up to me afterwards and said, your story is so amazing. And like, you could write a book. And that was the first time someone had said, you could write a book. And certainly from me sharing this very vulnerable thing about myself to be told, you know, I said, who would want to read my story? Who cares about my life? And he said, you never know whose life you could change by sharing your story. And I, I started um, writing just over the course of a couple of years would, would, you know, I wrote that story down. I wrote about you know, being an autism mom and, and we know the challenges that come with that and, and just other things from my, from my, from my past and my story. And, uh, and then finally in 2019, I was like, all right, here we go. And, um, published my book. And I, I just remembered feeling like the absolute most terrified I've ever felt in my life because, you know, the title is the things we don't talk about. And there were so many things in there. It's, you know, I, I felt like, people are going to be reading like my, my inner soul and kind of every dark secret. And, and in fact, one of the reviews on Amazon says that, you know, Stacy shares things that most people would take to the grave. And I said, that is probably the most accurate <laughs> description mm -hmm. of, of what I shared, but, but yeah, and it's been a huge part of my journey and being able to embrace those vulnerable parts and being able to um, connect with others through sharing those stories. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
So there are two pieces that you said there that I really, really want to dig into a little bit. I mean, there's lots in the book and I highly recommend um, if anybody is looking, it is on Amazon still. Yes. Yes. Awesome. If you were looking, this is really an inspiring book. Like Stacy said, she does share a lot of very vulnerable pieces of her life that most of us can find something in there to relate to. And the fact is that she never gave up. She never stopped at the mountain and thought, well, that's it. I'm packing it in and going home. Now I'm guessing you thought about doing that a few times. Anytime. Yeah, maybe more than a few. Uh, But still something in you drove you to say, nope, this is not the end of the line for me. I'm not turning around. I need to move forward. So the two pieces that I really want to pull apart and talk a little bit about are two that are near and dear to my own heart. So the first one is about making the choice to become a birth mom. Two, um, I mean, there are options when you find out that you're pregnant that you can choose and you made this decision. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what that was like for you. And then on the flip side of that, I want to talk about what that's been like for me as having received a child conceived by somebody else who now both of my children are joined our family through adoption and we have had the opportunity to meet one of our birth mothers. So there's two different perspectives on this, but still lots of amazing things. So talk a little bit about what went into making that decision for you. I, well, I grew up in a, a, fairly religious household. And so when I found out I was pregnant, that was pretty much my initial thought was that I would have this baby and find a family to place it with. That was, um, and, and, you know, I sat down with my mom and my mom, she offered me the choice. She said, I can take you to do this, or I can support you if you decide to do this. And and my mom, which I'm so grateful for. She, um, she provided that space for me to decide because mm-hmm. I was 16 and a junior and um, I turned 17 by the time I had him. But uh, that was just something that was the choice that was right for me mm-hmm. that I decided to make at that time. And it was the choice that I could live with. And um, it, it still, it still impacted me in a way that, you know, had I made a different choice, that other choice might've been easier and I might've avoided a lot of the pain and trauma from placing a child for adoption. But um, again, it was just the choice that was, that was right for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom was actually a nurse. And so she had gone to work and was just telling some coworkers about the situation and they knew another one. So my mom was labor and delivery. There was another nurse who was on postpartum and, and uh, my mom found out that they, she and her husband had been trying to have a baby unsuccessfully. So my mom came home and asked me if I would be willing to meet this couple. And uh, we went to their home and I immediately fell in love with them. And so they were with me throughout my entire pregnancy. They came to doctor appointments with me. They took me, they would call me up and say, what are you craving? And they would take me out to eat. Aww. And so I, I genuinely, I, I grew to love them. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, after, after everything was said and done, I, I felt like not only did I, I, I lose my baby and I, you know, had to mourn that loss, but I lost that relationship with them. Mm. And they, they, you know, once we stayed in touch for about a year and a half and then we fell out of touch. And this was pre-internet, pre all of the technology that we have Mm -hmm. today. So um, it was just hard for us to stay in touch, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm very glad that that was the choice I made. I, I never questioned except for the day after I had him or the day after I got home from the hospital, I remember lying in bed 
feeling this gaping hole in my heart and just feeling just empty. And my mom said, you know, that we were in South Carolina, the state of South Carolina. And my mom said, you know, the law says we have 30 days for you to change your mind. Mm-hmm. And I said, I can't change my mind because I can't do that to them. I wouldn't mm-hmm. do that to, you know, the adoptive couple, but, yep. um, but yeah, that was, that was our journey. And I, I hope that one day he wants to meet us. It's absolutely his choice. It was an open adoption and he, he knows I exist. Um, my kids would love to meet him. They all know that they have an older brother and, um, we would, we would welcome him with open arms if he ever reached out to us, but also, you know, we'll, whatever he decides is best for his life, then that's what we'll, we'll do. Mm-hmm. There's so much in that story. Um, and, you know, there's so many pieces of facets of that that we can pick up on. But I do want to talk about the fact that adoption is probably the only version of creating a family where a family is created from loss where the birth mom has that loss. You talked about that, that gaping hole in your heart, where uh, in a lot of cases, the adoptive families are dealing with loss. Often it can be that there's uh, infertility issues or a lack of being able to conceive or carry a baby to full term. So there's those losses. It's one of the only ways of creating a family where everybody has to lose something in order for everybody to gain something. And, uh, it's an interesting, it's an interesting process. Uh, being an adoptive mom myself, I have two boys, both joined our family through adoption. My oldest son, we actually met his birth mother and it was a very surreal, extraordinary experience, uh, meeting her. Our youngest son, his birth mother did not want to meet. She was She was very concerned that there might be judgment on our part, where really I just wanted to put my arms around her and say thank you. Um, So many different facets to this. And of course, the adoption journey has changed over the years since you had your son uh, in that professionals have gotten more educated about that process and how to help people negotiate it, both the adoptive families, the birth moms, the children, so that there's definitely more information out there. There's more um, awareness of choices and all that kind of stuff. But you're right. At the time this was happening for you, there was really nothing that you could access short of your mom's wisdom. Yeah. So let's move on from that to talk about the next piece. So you've gone on in your life, you've gotten married and you have other children and you happen to have a son with autism. So talk to us a little bit about the journey to his diagnosis. What was that like for you guys? What drove you to find this stuff out? Tell us a little more about that. Yeah. So we knew fairly early on because between the ages of two to three to four, as we were going to, you know, our, our wellness checks with the pediatrician, Hayden just was lagging in a lot of areas. He mm-hmm. was, you know, socially and, and language, he was developmentally delayed. And it, it got to a point where, you know, the pediatrician wasn't quick to say that he thought it could be autism. And so we didn't get an official diagnosis for a few years, but we had a pretty good idea, and especially with with him being so far behind in language mm-hmm. and, 
and then you know we learned about echolalia so he would he was repetitive when he finally did start speaking it was just that he was repeating back things that we were saying to him and at this same time when we did start the process of getting the autism diagnosis uh, we i was actually going through a divorce from his father and so there was this kind of this emotional turmoil happening in our household at the same time as as you know trying to go through this really hard challenge of navigating getting a diagnosis mm-hmm. and um it was hard it was it was scary it was scary for me because now I was I was becoming a single parent and I was realizing that I had this child who had a lot of needs that as a single parent I was like how how do I navigate this how do I mm-hmm. take care of it and so while it was really hard at the time and really scary it was also a wake-up call for me to um to pivot my life that I needed to do something because at the time I was waiting tables and I was bartending and I, you know, was always struggling financially. And I was like, I I know I have to do better because I have to do better him. Mm-hmm. So it was, you know, getting, getting that diagnosis and, and going through that, that process was, was good in that it really pushed me to, um, and I had to advocate for him, you know, I had mm-hmm. to up in in school and, and have all these meetings with so many teams and people. And so it, it really pushed me to, um, to be a better version, to be a better mom, really. Yeah. Yes. I totally understand everything you just said there. Um, and you're right. Like here's these two mountains, you've got this divorce and all the stuff that goes along with that. And now you've got this diagnosis and For those people who don't know, a diagnosis is not as simple as you go to the doctor, like say you have a, an infection in your finger, you go to the doctor, writes a prescription for an antibiotic. They send you off for seven days. Maybe they get you to check back in. Maybe not. It just goes away. That is not the process to diagnose a disability. Can you talk a little bit about, a little bit about that process? Like, did you have multiple people you were working with? What did that look like? Yeah. And in fact, we went through originally between three and four, we got him in a, a Head Start program, which was like an early intervention daycare. And through that childcare program, we did a different, um, it wasn't the, an official diagnosis at this point. It was that the professionals in that daycare would do assessments and then I would also do parent assessments. And then we would bring that data together and look at it. And so at that point, they said, we're mostly sure it's autism. Um, The pediatrician was also, again, and he's not a psychologist, psychiatrist, a neurologist. Like he, he was just like, yeah, we're all going to sign off on this and say it's autism. And that way he can get his individualized education plan. He can have extra access to resources when he started school. So we had that kind of unofficial diagnosis for a few years. And then in third grade, so when he was nine, was when uh, we actually, we had a really hard time with his teacher that year. So up to that point, all of the teachers had been so wonderful. The special ed teachers, everyone had been really loving and kind and, and just really good with him. But the third grade teacher was this old kind of he he was getting ready to retire and I think he was just tired of being a teacher. And so he didn't really have any patience with mm-hmm. Hayden. Um, so at that point to um, kind of, I think, solidify the diagnosis and to like really say like, no, he he's not in your class being defiant. He's not in here trying to um, push your buttons. We So we went and, and had an official diagnosis done at that point. And it was 
um, not only autism, but also ADHD and unspecified anxiety disorder. Mm -hmm. So now we realize, you know, it's one thing to have the, the neurodiversity of autism, but then to have these other diagnoses on top of it, it really, it, it gave me a lot of empathy because when I thought about how something might be really hard for him, you know, is it just, just the autism or, or is right. this behavior and this thing, this is his anxiety coming out or this mm-hmm. thing, is ADHD. And so once we had the full diagnosis, then we were really able to, to push and say, you know, because of the ADHD, he needs these accommodations or because of the autism, he needs these accommodations. So I think, again, you know, it can be scary to get the diagnosis, but it's also really empowering for, for families to be able to, to help their, their students, to help their kids, to be able to, you know, navigate their education and, mm-hmm. and everything else that they're going to have to work through in life. Again, one of those, well, I just saw a mountain range right there, like one after the other, after the other. And you're right. Diagnosis is not like an infection in your finger. It is multiple appointments with multiple people, all coming at it from different perspectives. You having to fill out all kinds of documents. And sometimes it's pretty straightforward to get to write some answers. And sometimes it's like one of those multiple choice things. You're like, but none of these answers really fits. And how do I qualify this? And how do I well, yes, but, and all that other fun stuff. So, so many appointments, so many steps. And then you're right. Not even with that information, not everybody you're going to encounter is going to say, okay, that's good. We'll work with that. Some people are like, and no, that's not how I do things. Or sorry, I can't do this or I can't do that. Or I won't. Now, in the education system, a lot of teachers won't say I won't because that's problematic. But, um, you know, you certainly get that feeling that you would come across teachers. And of course, you know, there are my son has uh, my youngest son has ADD. And there are some teachers that he just does way better because their teaching style matches his learning style better. And there are other teachers. His grade four teacher, for example, was a stand and deliver. He talked. And my son said, I have no idea what's important out of everything he just said. He talked for an hour and I don't know what was important. So like I put my pen down and I'm like, I don't know, all these people are writing things down and I don't, uh, okay, maybe I'll just doodle, right? Because he just, he didn't have the skill set. It's not how he learns best. It wasn't broken down in a way he could understand. So I totally get that. That's completely difficult. What I love out of everything you said there the most was how much empathy it built in for you, for your child, and how it made you a better advocate. Because you can, you can, as his mom, say, I see it. I see when this behavior happens. I know that's the anxiety piece. And that anxiety piece is coming out of a lack of understanding that's in the autism piece. So if we can address the lack of understanding over here, and then we can address some of the anxiety over here by reading safe safety, all that emotional safety, intellectual safety, all those other pieces. It makes you a much more powerful advocate when you approach things from the perspective of empathy. I have empathy for my child. I have empathy for the people working with my child because that's hard. And he's not the only kid in the room and they have to try and handle all these other things. So creating those alliances 
with the school as much as possible or the professionals working with your child is so important uh, because it does. It breeds just a better experience for everyone when you can be an ally for sure. Thank you for being a part of the Living Your Legacy podcast community in 2022. We can honestly say 2023 is going to be an exciting year. We've got some new things going on that we'd like to share with you. The Living Your Legacy podcast is now offering advertising spots. We found many entrepreneurs spent lots of money on advertising last year only to find that they weren't falling in front of their ideal audience. We'd love to help you get your message out. Let's discuss this. Click the link in the show notes to book a time to chat and see if this could be a good fit for you. So now let's fast forward a little bit. We wrote our book. We've had this amazing child. We're, we're doing life. We're becoming an advocate um, for autism in particular. Tell us some of the things that you've advocated for around autism. I'm always so excited to hear those things. Yeah. So, you know, seeing, especially as he gets older, just seeing the uh, kind of the lack of resources for people once they especially age out of the public school system and, mm -hmm. and just dealing with the simple things in life. Like you don't realize until you have these these kids like he he's getting ready to graduate in May and he has never been to a school dance. He's actually in a special education program where they don't really even have those things. So. Mm -hmm you know, the things that parents grow up and all the dreams they have for their kids and his trajectory is very, very different. And, mm -hmm. and so we've had to navigate, you know, he is a non-traditional kid and what does the world look like for people who are different? And if they have a journey that isn't going to be, you know, immediately graduating and going to a four-year university or college, um, what, what options are out there? What will, what will his situation be when he gets old enough to live on his own? And mm -hmm. so what I really wanted to do in our community was create more awareness. And, and I say, you know, we talk about autism awareness. I, I feel like most people have become more aware in recent years, but I like to call it autism appreciation. And that not only do we, we recognize it and see it, but that we, we embrace these, you know, we embrace neurodiversity, we embrace disability, we embrace differences. And so mm -hmm. In 2018, I, I I did a small autism walk in my community. We had about 20 people who showed up to that event. It was very small. Um, and then the next year, I was like, let's do a bigger event. And so I I found uh, a documentary that uh, had someone had created about employing autistic adults, and they were kind of they were doing premieres like a Sundance film premiere. And so I reached out to the, the producers and I said, hey, I do an autism event. Can I can I premiere your documentary? And they said, absolutely. So we held this big event and had uh, we had over 300 attendees come and we had 14 vendors and just teaching the community what autism looks like, mm -hmm. what resources are out there for people who also, you know, have loved ones that are either on the spectrum or have some other type of disability. And then we've just grown it every year since then. And and we always hold it in April because that's Autism Appreciation Month. And um, I've been able to do some really great things like we collaborated with our local police department mm -hmm. to implement a database. And that way, um, you know, families can go in, they can put in their loved one's information. And that way, if there's ever a call that, that were to go, you know, and if, if, if first responders are, are coming out to a home, that they will know 
to be on the lookout for someone who they might run away, they might be confrontational, they might be nonverbal, but that they can come into a situation and be prepared and just, you know, keep everyone safe, keep our, our law enforcement safe, keep our loved ones safe. Mm-hmm. So that's that's definitely one of the things I'm most proud of is, is being able to collaborate with our law enforcement and um, just do kind of these small things in our community to make make it better and safer for um, people, plus people who are different, make sure that they are feeling safe and seen and the sense of belonging. Just wow. Like we could stop the call right here. Just with that. I think there's such power in what you just said. Law enforcement, you're right. When they get a call, they get a portion of a 911 call because it has to go through a dispatcher and the dispatcher's pulling out tidbits of information. Often they don't have all the information and you're right. Should something be, should someone be breaking into your house? The last thing you want to do is spend an hour trying to explain how your child might react to this, right? So having that database empowers law enforcement to, well, choose their actions and their words differently to, to maybe it has, Something in there like you need to speak to mom. Okay, well, who's mom when I come in the house? So there's a child here I need to know something about. What do I do? Or a young adult that I need to know something about? Or are you the caregiver in this particular house? What can you tell me about the situation, this person? And it allows for opportunities for de-escalation out of the gate versus... I'm coming into this situation as a law enforcement officer. I expect everybody to be neurotypical. Someone behaves in a way that now is odd for me, that's sending up red flags and warning bells. My instinct is now to, I have to protect me. I have to protect the other people. And so it can escalate very, very quickly. And I love that. Um, And I am sure that there will be people in the audience who would love to connect with you to know how you did that so they can try and set those things up in their own communities. I can also imagine, because that's empowering for parents and caregivers, that has to be empowering in community building with law enforcement, right? We have brought, my oldest son has significant disabilities and we have always taught him, he is, he's got a list of things, That if you don't feel safe, if you get lost, you find someone in a uniform and you go to them and that's where you'll be the safest. Because I'm thinking like if we ever lost him at a, say, a large scale play area or, you know, like something like um, a five sails or five flags or one of those amusement parks. Right. And it's huge. Um, You go to someone with a uniform because they're usually going to know at least where to bring you to get that information out so that we are going to come looking. Um, And so I think how community building that is, because now those law enforcement officers have that opportunity to stretch and grow themselves, to stretch and grow their own police force as they educate each other, to create those situations where we have an appreciation and a value of those people. There are police officers in our community who actually address my son by name. I mean, we were at 7-Eleven and my son was all excited because there was a police car there and these two police officers were getting Slurpees. And he was just so excited about their, their car being there that these two police officers literally brought him outside with them, had him sit in the car and turn on the lights. And I mean, he, I was like, oh, he's never going to leave your car. I'm sorry, you're going to have to take him on tour with you today. <laughs> but it was great. such a nice moment between them. A moment of, 
genuine advocacy, but not in an aggressive fashion. They had lots of questions about my son, and I was happy to answer them. And it was a very genuine and kind exchange. And again, we have seen those police officers at other community events where they're like, hey, and they come up and high five my son. And, you know, other kids are like, whoa, like you actually know a police officer? And it's so, it builds community. It builds strength and understanding. And I love that you've done that. And kudos to you, because again, that's a mountain that you could have turned around and walked away from for sure. And finally, autism acceptance versus awareness. Now, there is a beautiful term. Don't we all wish that we were accepted in all the different areas of our lives? And you are absolutely right. My son's trajectory is a lot like your son's trajectory. My son's never been to a school dance either. And um, looking at that, there's some loss and sorrow in those things. But also, how can we create unique experiences? How can we, I am aware that in a large group situation, it might not work the best for him. So can I create a mini one, which is what we're doing. We have two of his best friends who also have disabilities and we have hired a photographer and we are going to get them all dolled up in a suit and they are going to go have a professional photo shoot done. And she is a special needs mom herself. So I know she knows how to work with kids who are different and they are going to have the best time that right there. Is- that is amazing. And then we're booking a restaurant and we're going to go take everybody out to dinner and they're going to have so much fun. It's not the great big, huge hoopla, but he too will have pictures that he can show and all the other kids are showing their pictures. He's going to have some to be like, look, this is us. Um, and it's super fun when we can create those opportunities for inclusion and acceptance. That that right there changes the world. And I love that you've chosen that word. It's not autism awareness, because you can be aware and judgmental at the same time. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Right? But when you accept, it means that you, you have to do some stretching and growing and learning to see the person, not just the disability. Right? When you see the person, the disability just doesn't seem, I don't know, as big, as prevalent, I don't know. It's not the thing you see first. It's the person you see first. Right. And I love that you said that and that you've done that. That's extraordinary. Okay, folks, I did tell you she was awesome and all these things she's done and we're not done yet. Like this is not the only area of her life that she's working into. So let's talk about becoming a TEDx speaker. Talk about that journey a little oh, bit. Oh, that mountain. So, and I and I reference this in in my TEDx talk if you go watch it. So it's called Confessions of Recovering Nobody, which I think that goes along with the theme. I mean, my book is the things we don't talk about, and then Confessions of Recovering Nobody is these again these stories and the things that we go through and these ideas of imposter syndrome and not feeling like no matter how hard I work that I belong in a certain space and. Um, the journey of even getting to that red circle of that TEDx stage was that uh, I went to my first TEDx event in 2016 as an attendee. I was watching the Salt Lake TEDx event and I left that day and I said, I want to do that. And I'm a big proponent of vision boards and I do, you know, I'm about manifesting and goal setting. So I came home and I put that on my vision board in 2016 that I want to do a TEDx. And in 2017, that was the first year that they were holding a TEDx event in my city in Ogden, Utah. And so 
I, um, I reached out and I applied and I got an interview and I was really excited and I didn't get chosen. And so I'm like, all right. So 2018 came back again and applied. Um, I didn't get an interview that year, 2019. I was like, Oh, come on. Third time's a charm. Like this will be the year. And I applied and I got an interview and then I didn't get chosen. And so I remember like looking at my vision board and I'm like, do I just take this off? Do I, I've been rejected so many times. And I had also applied to other TEDx events outside of my city. So, I mean, three times I applied in Ogden, but I had applied dozens of times in other cities. So I'm like, at what point in time do I just accept that maybe this isn't going to happen? And so uh, in 2020, I actually got invited by the organizers. I didn't even have to apply. They reached out to me and they said, Stacy, we have followed your journey. We have seen what you've been doing. We've been seeing, you know, you had, I had written my book at that point. I was really busy in the advocacy around autism. And uh, so they're like, you don't even have to apply. If you want, if you want a spot, like we have a spot for you. (laughs) So I was like, oh my gosh, see what happens when you get to that point where you're like ready to give up. Cause I really was, I was ready to give up. Mm -hmm. And and so I got invited and it, it was 2020 and it was when the pandemic was happening and I was like, well, great. Now it's going to get canceled because we're in this, you know, we're in this global pandemic and, um, they ended up, they still held it. They, they pushed it out. Usually they held it in the summer. They pushed it out to the fall and, um, they had a kind of a socially distanced auditorium. They didn't sell it to full capacity, but I, I finally got there. I finally got to my, to my spot in the, in the red circle. That's amazing. And I, Again, the journey of I applied several times. I had all these processes. I decided this was going to be the year and then it wasn't. And just as you're ready to take that off the board, instead of having to figure out what you're going to do about the mountain, somebody else moved it for you. That's amazing when that happens. And truly, if we don't give up on the, the legacies we're creating, on the goals, the visions, the things that are bigger than us that we're just called to do, sometimes that magic just shows up. And when you least expect it, where are you least expected? Sometimes not in the form you thought it was going to be in. But wow, amazing. And that is something really worth being proud of. And thank you for referencing that TED Talk. So by all means, folks, go check that out. It is worth listening to for sure. So let's switch gears yet again and talk about becoming an elected school board member. When did that become something you decided you needed to do? Kind of the way things have been going politically in recent years. I, I I wasn't super political growing up. I mean, I started, I started voting probably in like my mid twenties and certainly in presidential elections. And then I got a little more involved in local elections, but I, uh, I I had a friend who was actually running for city council and and I was supporting her and helping her out through her campaign. And um, she ended up losing by just a really small margin. But I just remembered feeling like, like her loss felt like my loss. And I just was really disappointed because she is a Latina and we have a really high um, Hispanic and Latino population in my community. So I was really disappointed that we lost that voice at the table and with her being a woman. And that's something that we know across um, our nation that women are underrepresented in elected positions. So 
I was, you know, I was sad for her. I was disappointed, but I never thought it was something that would be in my journey that I would want to do. But from, from her experience and, and after she lost, she was kind of like, no, you should, you should do this, which felt weird to me because she had just gone through it and she hadn't won. And she was like, but, but you should do this. And I was always told, even if you don't win, if you run, you can still help create change. And especially mm-hmm. being a woman and being a woman of color. And, um, and so I started, I mean, I got the seed was planted. And so I thought, okay, like what would, what would that look like? And so I started meeting with other elected officials in my city. I met with some other city council members. I met with another woman who, uh, she is the second Latina elected to our school board. I had met with her and asked her about her experience and she was like, you should do it. And, uh, I looked up the person who currently sat in, in the seat and, um, he had been serving two terms. He was a teacher in a neighboring school district. And I didn't have anything, you know, I didn't think one thing one way or the other about whether he was doing a, a good job, but I just felt like, you know, he doesn't have kids who are in the district. I have two students who are in the district. In fact, at the time when I decided to run, none of our elected school board leaders, we have seven school board members, and none of them had students in the district because- oh, wow. Yeah, a lot of them have been serving for a long time. And so their students have aged out and and most of them have grandkids in the district, but but they're, you know, not any actual their own students. And so um, so I I decided that I would give it a shot, that I would here was a, an opportunity that maybe I could uh help to create some positive change. And especially with my experience navigating special education for 12 years through this mm-hmm. school district and and my relationship with teachers. And, and two, like, I wanted to be an advocate for our teachers. I wanted to be an advocate for other parents and, um, and, and for our community in general and be that, that voice that I'm, I'm here to listen. I'm, I'm here for everyone. So I was doing a bunch of training and I, and I kept getting told like, because I'm a first time candidate, because I was running against an incumbent and because I was a woman running against a man, I had all these odds stacked against me. I had that mountain that like, there was no way I was going to climb this mountain. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I kind of had it in my head that no matter how hard I worked, that I probably wouldn't win. And uh, the good people of Ogden, they said otherwise, and uh, my hard work paid off. So in November, I, I won my election and I'm the first Filipina elected to to my school board. And we are now an all-female school board. <laughs> we're all We're all women. Wow. Wow. Just again, folks, can you see this? Like this is the wow in this conversation. So as a woman of color, as a woman, as a special needs mom, you are embodying all of these pieces that you can bring to the table. You have children in the system. So you know what's happening from within and you have this now voice to be able to impact it from without and make positive change. Love that. And I loved your pictures on Facebook of you being sworn in. I was so stinking proud of you when I saw it. Um, And congrats. That's amazing. Now, as if that wasn't enough, let's talk about becoming the diversity, equity, and inclusion manager for the Utah Jazz. Let's talk about how you got there and talk a little bit about what that is. That is probably the wildest part of my journey. And I've had some wild parts of my journey, but that. So, so yeah, while I was actually in the middle of my campaign, while I was running for school board, I heard about this job opportunity and, uh, I remembered seeing, seeing the title 
and thinking, if I could have created a dream job, if I could have said, this is what I want to do with my life, that would have been it. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that that opportunity existed or that it would ever even be in my realm because I had, I had started doing, um, diversity training a few years ago. So I was, I was traveling, I was doing presentations all over the country. I was doing virtual ones. I was, I've been on global presentations because again, my experience as a biracial Asian woman, as a mother to, you know, a neurodiverse child, I'm really passionate about this topic because I have the sense of urgency about creating change and about, you know, making sure that we're being inclusive and, and being safe spaces for people who are different. So I see this job and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to apply for this job and there's no way I'm getting this job. And Mm -hmm. I'm really used to getting rejected. You know, let's go back to my TEDx journey. Like I'm used to getting told no. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to apply for this job that there's no way I'm getting. And uh, so I submit my application. And then like a month later, I get a call and they're like, hey, we want to do an interview with you. And uh, my first interview was three uh, Zoom calls with three different people from the company. And, uh, I, I was so nervous. Like, I'm like, I don't think I sold myself enough. I think I, I should have told them this story. And I, and anyway, um, I thought for sure I wasn't going to get a call back. Then they called me and said, okay, we're going to actually bring you to our office in Salt Lake, which is about 45 minutes from my house. Um, we're going to bring you into our office and have you interview with five people this time. And I was like, okay, all right. Like I'm, I'm, I can do this. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I went, I went down to Salt Lake. I met with my my five different um, people that I was interviewing with, and then I was having lunch with the team of people who I would be working with should I get the job. And um, we're sitting in this lunch, and I said, "So, how many candidates have you narrowed it down to? You know, how many people are you considering?" And I was thinking it would be like six or eight or ten. I didn't know what I was thinking. And they said, "It's between you and one other person." Oh, <gasps> yeah. Wow. So at that point, I was like, "Okay, like." So you're saying I have a chance like I. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And uh, so they called me a few days later and they offered me the job. I was actually at a meet the candidate event for my school board race. And so I I stepped out of this event and I and I am like, I can't believe it. I I got the dream job. And so they wanted me to start on November 1st, which was a week before the election. And so for that week, I was it was like the most stressful, busy, wild, like, I can't believe this is my life. And there was a part of me that was like, well, maybe, maybe if I do lose my election, like maybe that would be okay because then I can move closer to Salt Lake. Then we could be closer to work. Um, But also I had worked really, really hard in my election. So I was like, I I still want to win, but if I win, I have to stay living in my district for four years. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, so the two, I didn't think I would get either of them. And instead, I got both of them. And this role is brand new to the Utah Jazz. It's um, the NBA, so the National Basketball Association. They started creating these roles a few years ago, and they wanted every team across the league to hire someone in this position. So, um, yeah, so it's the first time the Utah Jazz has had this role, and I get to be the first person in it. That's amazing. So now talk a little bit about how you can inform change there. What are some of the things that you are responsible for with the Utah Jazz? Yeah, so I get to do a lot of things internally, but I also get to do a lot of things with the community, which is really exciting. And so I love that that opportunity to really shift. I mean, we 
we have the capability to influence policy mm-hmm. and, and, and things that are happening on a state and honestly, even national and global level through, you know, the NBA and through our team itself. So I, so the things I'm doing like internally, we have, we have over 400 full-time employees and 1200 part-time employees. So I work with our people and culture, which is HR. I work with people and culture and we're looking at the training that we're going to be doing, that we're going to be bringing in for the next year. And we have a lot of great things coming up as far as looking at gender issues and talking about our LGBTQ plus community and talking about um, disability. We're going to have initiative that we're going to be working on to look at how we can hire more people with disabilities in our, in our organization. I'm, I'm so excited about that. I'm mm-hmm. super, super excited about that. Um, and then, and then get to work with um, doing different events in our community for, you know, certain underrepresented uh, communities and being able to have interactions for our students. And so education is really important to the NBA and to the Utah Jazz. And so, which is also great for me as a school board member, because mm-hmm. they're, they're very supportive of me and my work there. And um, so I, I just get to do so much awesome stuff. And um, it's like, it's, I, I pinch myself that this is my job. I can't believe that this is what I get to do. And then connect with all of the other people in these roles across the country and also the Toronto Raptors because we do have uh, one team in Canada. So uh-huh. yeah, it's it's awesome. I get to just, I get to connect with amazing people. So I am incredibly lucky. Uh, yes. Blessed, but earned, right? You have earned every step of the way into all this. You didn't just wake up one morning and have someone sprinkle fairy dust on you and magical things happened. Every single time you looked at the mountain and thought, all right, where am I going with this? And now suddenly people who are on the mountain are finding you. They are finding you to say, that's a voice we need to have in amongst all our other voices. That perspective needs to be heard. And I loved what you said there about, you know, women being underrepresented. The truth is we're 51% of the world's population, but we don't really control 51% of the world's much. There are things that are happening and it is changing, but those voices need to be elevated in our cities, in our homes, in our countries around the world. We need to elevate those voices of inclusion. The people who are the legacy makers, who are out there saying, hey, hang on, there are things we can do better here. And if I make it better for you, then you can in turn make it better for someone else. We can make it better for someone else. And it just spreads like amazing ripples. And Stacey, you are like the definition of a legacy maker. Look at all these things that, you know, all these things that happened in your life have led you to this place now where instead of saying, well, this was a bad decision, therefore I am a bad person, therefore I'm never going to amount to anything, therefore I'm not going to put any effort in. You've said, okay, maybe I made some decisions that were questionable, but I can make better decisions. And there are circumstances that happen over which I had little or no control, and now I need to decide what I'm going to do with that. Is it going to defeat me? Or am I going to figure out how to make this better? And that courage that you show on a daily basis by showing up by, I mean, even in the special needs journey and, you know, all the other journeys that you've had, there are lots of places where you heard no, 
no, this can't happen. No, I won't do this for your child. No, this is not okay. No, we're not going to, we're not going to do that. No, you feel unwelcome here or unsafe. And all those no's, all those, this is impossibles you've turned into, but I'm possible. And, and when you step into a room, it just, the positive ripples from all that are amazing. I am so blessed to have had the opportunity to watch you go through some of these experiences and to be on that journey. And thank you for sharing that very publicly because it does inspire people more than you do know. And I am sure in our audience, there is going to be people who want to reach out to you. So Stacy, what's the best way for people to find you if they're looking for you? Because I can only imagine there's going to be a lot of people like I need more of that woman too. Yeah, I would love that. So I have my website is still up and running. So that's cstacyspeak.com. And my email, uh, there's actually a, a form on my website for people to get a hold of me that way, or they can directly email me. And all, I, all my contact information is on my website. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And, and you know, I got off Twitter. Twitter got a little too much for me, but I'm pretty much everywhere else. And so mm-hmm. I, I welcome, I love connecting with other people. And if it's something that, if I can help someone else in their journey, if I can, if someone reaches out and has a question about, how did you do this? And how could I replicate that in my city and, and do something, you know, good for my community and my, my kids. And I, I feel like if that's what I can do for my legacy, if that's what I can leave behind is those ripple effects of helping other people do that in their lives, then that is a life well-lived and a legacy that I am glad to have left. So that's amazing. Um, so Stacy has given us all of her contact info. It will be in the show notes for the episodes so that you can have an opportunity to reach out, listen to her TEDx speak, listen, get her book on Amazon, check her out, ask her those questions that she is absolutely right. The more we can learn from each other, the more we can replicate those amazing ripples of kindness that do change the world in positive ways. Stacy, I can't thank you enough for giving us an hour of your time today to share your story of inspiration, of hope, of never giving upness, of all the amazing things that make you, you. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Michelle. Does the thought of follow-up give you a foul taste? Do you find yourself wondering how you can ever stand out from the crowd, but need it to be easy and convenient? With a system like Send Out Cards, you can stay in touch and top of mind with only a few keystrokes. People's inboxes might be full, but their mailboxes are empty. Reach people literally where they live, work, or play, and watch the warm fuzzies go to work for you. See the show notes for a link where you can send your first card on me. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please submit a rating and review and share it with a friend. Together, we can inspire more people to start living their legacy too. And let's keep the conversation going. We would love to hear all about your journey in living your legacy and support you along the way. Join our Facebook community, Living Your Legacy Podcast, where we connect, collaborate, and celebrate each other. Can't wait to see you there.